Hello, this is episode eight of season four. Now, in this episode, I'll be speaking with Matthew Willis of Bushfire Planning Services. Matt is a bushfire consultant and he'll be sharing with us when you require this role in your renovation or building project. And you may be surprised. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Our Get It Right podcast partner for season four is Colourbond Steel and their matte range. So Colourbond Steel matte is a great choice for creating a stunning, sophisticated and subtle look for your home in a material that is tested to withstand Australia's harsh conditions and be durable, long-lasting and strong for your home. As you may know, Colourbond Steel has been around for over 50 years now, so quintessentially Australian, it's been used in all kinds of projects in locations all across Australia with its tried and tested performance and its enduring style. The Colourbond Steel matte range takes this to the next level. With five colours to choose from, the matte range was tested for 10 years before it was brought to market. Sophisticated and understated, it has this gorgeous luxe feel in a material that's seriously strong and durable. There are so many ways that you can use it in the walls and roof of your home, whether you're renovating or building, to create the design style that you're seeking. With a beautiful and neutral look, it has an elegance that I know that you'll love, and it diffuses light for a soft, natural, textured finish and not only does Colourbond steel matte look gorgeous being steel it's also 100% recyclable it's high-tech it's tested and designed for the Australian climate it's a choice for bushfire zones it's able to give your home a contemporary and sophisticated feel and it has 50 years of history behind it as a brand it's just amazing so head to www.colourbond.com forward slash undercover architect and that's c-o-l-o-r bond.com forward slash undercover architect there you can learn more about this great matte range you can request samples which i really encourage you to do and you can get inspired for how you could use it in your reno or new home and stay tuned across the season as i'll be sharing more ideas and info to help you see how it could work for your project now let's get on with the episode Now, before you think, bushfire consultant, why would I need a bushfire consultant? I don't live near the bush. I don't have any bush nearby. The fire isn't an issue for my property. No, just hang on a tick, okay? Surprisingly, you actually don't need to live right near a large area of bush to be impacted by a bushfire risk. And in fact, I first connected with my guest for this episode when I was looking at a suburban home in Sydney. The bushfire risk came up early in my council searches, even though this home did not look like it was anywhere near any significant bush. However, the site did back onto a narrow reserve, this little finger of trees, and then that reserve was then connected to a larger bush area and then that connected into National Park. So the fact that that posed a bushfire risk to this property hence brought about the bushfire overlay that I found when I did my council searches. Now I've had similar experience with a property in Perth. It was simply located in a suburban area where each block was quite steep. It had significant trees on it and there was a reserve nearby. So 
If you're in a regional location, you may definitely be aware that you have a bushfire risk to manage for your property. It can impact some suburban locations as well and in quite surprising ways. So it's definitely something to understand if it's a risk that you need to manage for your renovation or building project. So let me introduce Matthew Willis. So Matt is a bushfire consultant and he's a principal at Bushfire Planning Services. Bushfire Planning Services is an established and professional consultancy firm that specialises in bushfire risk assessments and compliance issues, mainly within New South Wales. With over 15 years experience in the bushfire mitigation and compliance industry, with thousands of successfully approved projects, Bushfire Planning Services is actually one of the most experienced companies in the industry today. They have extensive knowledge of the finer points of New South Wales requirements for building in bushfire prone areas, the types of products that are available for construction and the requirements of the Australian standard for building in bushfire prone areas and this applies to renovating as well. Now Matt personally has extensive knowledge of construction methods and materials that he's gained through 10 years of prior involvement in the building industry and he was a firefighter with the New South Wales Fire Brigade which is now the New South Wales Fire and Rescue. He's also one of the first people in Australia to gain postgraduate degree in planning for bushfire prone areas. Matt has also sat on industry committees with the New South Wales Rural Fire Service and he personally has good working relationships with the Rural Fire Service and many local councils. And over the years, the Bushfire Planning Services Consultancy have also established these great working relationships and uh, with the Rural Fire Service and with local councils alike. So, you know, they're very well positioned to discuss projects prior to submission and this in turn allows for a much smoother passage through the approval process, saving time, money and heartache. Anytime that you can find a consultant who can speak to those that are making the decisions about your project and whether it gets approved or not, when they can get this information before you've headed down a design path or a construction path, they're handy people to have on your team. Now, this is a great opportunity for us to understand more about how a bushfire consultant can help you and what you may need to be aware of if this is something to consider for your property. This is about the who, the what, the when and the why of using a bushfire consultant for your renovation or building project. So let's get into the episode. So welcome, Matt, to the Get It Right podcast. It's absolutely fantastic to have you here. I really appreciate you coming in to chat to me. And, uh, and to our listeners at home as well, because I know that the whole area of bushfire consultancy can feel like a really big, I suppose, red herring, big, scary, you know, beast of a thing when you first see it turn up on your property. But I've given some background as to you and your business, but perhaps you can tell us a little bit about it in your own words and the type of projects that you work on. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for having me, Amelia. My background is in building and construction, a bit of transport, and I was a firefighter with the New South Wales wow. Fire Brigade for um, for seven years. I've undertaken a postgraduate degree in planning for bushfire protection, which at the time I was, uh, I think I was the third one in Australia to graduate. Oh, wow. So I've been doing it, I think that was, yeah, that was 2005 I graduated. Uh, since then I've been running my own business uh, as a bushfire consultant. I was actually running it before that as well, but yes. that's uh, the formal education didn't come in till early 2000s and uh, yeah I've been doing it ever since. And I can imagine being a firefighter actually places you very well to understand as a bushfire consultant what you're actually dealing with and helping people contend with and protect their properties from. Uh, it certainly has advantages. I mean I can look at things from I suppose a different perspective from somebody who's never seen a piece of bush burn or a, or a house burn so yeah it helps. 
So, Matt, I think that when we first see that bushfire overlay, as I said earlier, on a property, I know the very first time that I saw it in my career, it was like, oh, how? Okay, right, Let's. this is going to be another council overlay that we need to deal with. So when I'm saying overlay, I mean that it's something that council will trigger and say is a consideration for your specific property and it's going to need to be something you have to contend with in applying to build or renovate on your property and and basically tick off a bunch of requirements that they have at a council level. So can you just talk through why somebody would need a bushfire consultant and what, you know, what they really need to be thinking about when they see that bushfire overlay turn up uh, in their first sort of planning investigations? Okay, well, look, the requirements vary from state to state and what I will comment on is mainly New South Wales because I'm New South Wales based. Generally, if you're bushfire prone, it means you're within 100 metres of a significant piece of bushland. So you're triggered as the bushfire prone land map says, there's a hazard, you need to have it looked at. So once you're bushfire prone, you're either really badly off or not so badly off. (laughs) It depends on how close to the bush you are. And that's where the consultant comes in. They evaluate your property, your proposal. They tell you where you're going or you need to go as far as bushfire protection level um, and that will have an effect on your design and costs. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing, isn't it? Because as we were talking about off-air, you know, I see a lot of homeowners, they won't find out about the bushfire component of their required approvals until they're about to go and get a construction permit or a construction certificate or building approval for their property. And that by that stage, they've resolved a design, they've made a whole heap of choices about materials and design and style. And from a budgetary point of view, it may be satisfying everything. And then they find out about this bushfire requirement, which then of course changes, you know, material requirements and design requirements. And there's this great big kind of unravelling that happens when they realise that it's going to cost far more than they want to or it's something that they just hadn't contended with at all. So, Matt, when somebody, you know, does see that bushfire, you know, issue come up on their site, uh, you know, could you just talk through how, you know, what actually happens in terms of getting a bushfire consultant on board and then them doing that assessment? Because I know that for a lot of people, I think, Um, they possibly don't find out that this is a requirement until they go to put in their building approval and it can have significant budgetary implications because there are certain requirements based on how bushfire prone your property may be, the risk that bushfire may place on your property, what you then have to do to your property to protect it from burning down Uh, and, of course, then that will change budget in terms of material choices and those types of things. So... Perhaps if you can explain just that process of a bushfire consultant coming to you and that making that assessment and what the outcome of that is in terms of the ratings and that that terminology that we hear, the BAL and the different numbers and, and that whole process, if we can just demystify that a bit for people. Okay, well, you're correct. I often get people who ring me up and say, I've gone to hand my DA in at the council and they've sent me away to find a bushfire certificate. Can you do one of them? And I said, oh, we're sure. And a lot of the time it'll put an end to their proposal. Mm. Which is heartbreaking, isn't it? No, I've had more than one person cry on the phone to me. Yeah. They'll buy their ideal block with beautiful bushy outlook and they want to build their their dream home on it and um, they find out they're in the flame zone. They find out it's going to cost them an extra minimum $120,000 on top of of what what they'd budgeted for and they just can't afford it. Mm. 
Um, that's the worst case scenario. Uh, a lot of the time I'll get somebody who'll you know, ring up and say, I need a bushfire attack level certificate and I'll, I'll look at it and go, okay, yeah, well, you, you, you're very low. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the, the lower levels of construction are just normal, sensible building. Yeah. And, in, and then satisfy those things. So yep. so BAL stands for bushfire attack level and then there's the different numbers and rating systems. Can you just talk through, you know, because I know people will see this when it starts to kind of come up on, you know, regional properties or even some suburban properties I know will trigger this for people. I've had properties in Perth and Sydney that have had bushfire attack level ratings on them. What what do these numbers sort of mean and how, how do they work in terms of what people need to start considering and the questions they need to ask? Okay, well, the bushfire, well, the BAL stands for bushfire attack level. That's a level under Australian Standard 3959, construction of buildings in bushfire prone areas. There's six levels. It starts at the, the lowest level, which is called Ballow, strangely enough. <laughs> <laughs> they worked hard to get that one, they didn't did. they? <laughs> they did. Then they go to Bell 12.5, Bell 19, uh, Bell 29, Bell 40, and the top of the level one is Bell Flame Zone. Which is the BALFZ, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, that's the one you want to try and avoid. Yes. The, um, the 12.5, the 19 and the 29 are all based around the failure point of glass. Oh, okay. So the, the 12.5, the numbers are kilowatts per square metre of radiant heat energy. Oh, wow. So it's the, the amount that's, of heat the fire puts out. That's super scientific, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah you should see the calculations. <laughs> way beyond me. <laughs> but uh, 12.5, normal float glass will fail. Okay. Bell 19 or 19 kilowatts. Uh, float glass that has a screen in front of it will fail. Okay. Bell 29, toughened glass will fail. Okay, so that obviously then impacts clearly. You're thinking about the windows, which are you know, normally the most sort of um, or the least protective parts of your home. They're the uh, most vulnerable. Yeah, yeah and sure. so um, and so obviously when the bushfire is approaching your house, at what point that window will give way mm-hmm. and let the bushfire into the property? Is Correct. that yep? Okay. Correct. The um, Bell twelve point five and Bell nineteen are, as I said previously sensible building as far as I'm concerned. They're nothing terribly flash. Um, and nothing too onerous in terms of no. just a, a slight up spec in what you're already doing to yeah. create a durable and you know, home overall? Is yeah. that sort well, of your 12. thoughts? 12.5 and 19 are primarily addressing ember attack from a fire. Okay. So, so embers can fly from kilometres away. It's, it's Generally it's 80-something or other percent of houses burned down through ember attack. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so bushfire a long way away, wind catches, embers, brings them across, and then because the house isn't built to a certain level, it is ignitable through embers, yeah. and then that's what will burn it down. Yeah, they uh, they go into roof cavities where there's years and years of dust and debris accumulated, uh, light up garbage in gutters, and set your mulch on your, around your house on fire. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, that's Death interesting because I can I know that a lot of regional people that I speak to they don't understand but they'll be looking across fields and fields of paddocks and you know open space yet have bushfire overlay on their property and long range they can obviously see bushland um, but don't understand why when it's so far away it impacts them but I do know from experience you know in the, where I live in the Northern Rivers. 
uh, and seeing people having to make sure that all of their eaves are um, fully sealed mm -hmm. so that they can't have those ember attacks happen and just basically ignite their homes even though that bush, you know, source is a long, long way away. So that's a great way of understanding that ember attacks are, are such a significant thing to consider. Well, in the regional areas where the bush might be miles away, what's between the bush and them? Is it grass? Grass burns like mad. Yeah. And throws off embers. It's a short, sharp, intense fire. Um, Canberra bushfires are a good one to look at. Mm -hmm. um, houses burnt down miles away, oh, not miles, kilometres away from the actual uh, fire source and that was generally embers. And because everyone had evacuated, there was nowhere there to put it out. Mm. But I think that's a bit of a political issue, so I won't go into that one. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you're in a bushfire-prone area, you can't use normal timbers outside. You have to use what they call a, a bushfire-resistant timber, which is generally a, a pretty solid hardwood, uh, something like merbau, uh, blackbutt, spotted gum. They're generally timbers that are very dense, I think the requirement is 750 kilograms per cubic metre. Oh, wow. So okay. It's a, it's a solid chunk of timber. Yeah. And there's also some other composite materials now available on the market for things like external decking and that type of thing. So, Yeah, there's a, a couple of, uh, well, there's one I can think of reconstituted product, uh, which is suitable for bale 40, where normal timber isn't. Mm -hmm. Normal timber cuts out at bale 29, like these the fire retardant timbers. Okay. You can only build up to bale 29 with those. Once you get over that, generally... There is no timber mm -hmm. that'll do bell 40 or flame zone. So you're looking at a some sort of manufactured product. There's more and more coming online now and there's some that actually look pretty good, whereas before for a deck you were pretty much limited to concrete and tiles, but now there's some, some products that don't look too bad. So, Matt, uh, you know, some of the things that I, I know that we've spoken about and that I've seen people do is they say, well, I've spoken to um, this person or I've given my architect a call or I've given my builder a call about the fact that I've got this BAL 29, BAL you know, 40, BAL flame zone on my property and they've said that I just need to do X, Y and Z and then I'm going to be fine. Um, can you talk to why there's some problems around that, you know, some of the mistakes that then can happen uh, and the pitfalls that people fall into and, the, you know, these urban myths that are that are around sort of this idea of bushfire compliance. Yeah, sure, that's, a, that's actually a good question. The urban myths are ripe out there in the in, regarding bushfire. Everybody's an expert. Anybody who's ever lit up a bonfire in the backyard thinks they understand fire. <laughs> 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 and consequentially the rules and regulations revolving around them. Look, you might have somebody who is a fireman, has been a fireman for the next last 20 years and they might give you advice, but unless they know the ins and outs of the rules, don't listen to them. I've seen so many people work on advice that's wrong from non-professionals. Um, it's just not worth it. You might respect them and know that they're great blokes and uh, have lots of knowledge, but always go for the professional. It'll save you money in the long run. Yeah, because you're actually having to perform to an Australian standard. So yep. unless you understand the intricacies of that standard, plus all the other regulations and rules and then approval processes, you could come unstuck very, very quickly, couldn't you? Oh, for sure. One of the things I find occasionally happens is Australian AS3959-2009 has gone through three versions. Oh, wow. All right, so the first one came out obviously in 2009. It was accepted by the BCA in 2010. 
um, in 2011, I think it was, the second version came out because they found things wrong with the first version and I think shortly after that one, the third version came out. Most people don't want to spend the 100 bucks it costs to buy AS3959, so they'll search online. They'll find version 1 for free, they'll find version 2 for free, rarely will they find version 3 for free, and nobody knows to go look for version 3. So online advice isn't good as far as that goes. Yeah, that's that's great advice because you can see how quickly you could think you're doing the right thing. You know, you've had a conversation with somebody who's sort of pointed you in the direction to look. They're not the professional, but they've said, if you just check this out, you'll be okay. You get really excited because you can find the information online. You think you can do it all yourself and Mm then, yeah. And then just to throw another spanner in the works, uh, there's a thing called the Addendum to Appendix 3 of Planning for Bushfire Protection. Oh, my gosh. Which which is a New South Wales variation to Bell 12.5 and Bell 19, which brings certain aspects of them up to Bell 29. Right. And unless you know what you're doing, you don't know it's there. And theoretically, in if you don't know that's there, you build your deck out of treated pine. And when I come to have a look at it, I tell you to pull it down. And that's the thing is that, that you know, I often say that one of the biggest challenges around building or renovating your home is you don't know what you don't know. Mm. And it's in the gaps that extra costs, extra time, extra drama can occur. And you can create that result that requires total undoing or demolition or reworking um, when you find out far too late that you made the wrong assumption. So, Yeah, and trying to retrospectively repair something to a bushfire attack level is horrible. Mm. I've often come across people who have just done it wrong and, oh, I need to repair it. Well, you know, you can't. You have to actually rebuild it. Yeah, or um, screen it in some cases, very rare cases, but generally it's replace or rebuild, yeah. Wow. Well, I think that's great advice in terms of people understanding just how much jeopardy this can place your project in Mm. if you haven't got the right advice from the correct professional um, early in the piece. So thank you for for sharing. You know, I'm always conscious of not scaring people too much (laughs) when it comes, but I think it's necessary sometimes to hear just how badly things can go so that you know how to avoid it when you're having a go at it yourself so that it's you just don't waste time having conversations with the wrong people and then acting on the the well-meaning advice but it's just not well-informed in terms of them being up to date with current uh, rules and requirements. Yeah, sure, well-meaning. Everybody wants to try and help but they should only help if they know what they're doing. Okay, so somebody's found out they've got this bushfire overlay, they're getting an understanding now of what BAL stands for, the different rating systems, hopefully it's not an FZ and... and um, and because I know that I've spoken to people who've gone, oh, my gosh, I've got an FZ, you know, this is just terrible. Um, hopefully it's not that. But if there is, you know, this bushfire, you're in a bushfire-prone area, you get the bushfire consultant to come to your place or you talk to them over the phone and they can do that assessment. What what do you physically sort of provide to somebody and then what do they need to do with that information in terms of moving forward? And is is that, you know, is it, a, is it a role that you continue to play in their project in terms of you stay in touch with them and have to do something as part of their development application? You know, how, how long can a, somebody expect a bushfire consultant to need to be involved for them to get the approvals that they need? Okay, well, generally it's, um, it's not a long involvement. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I have people ring me up years after I've done the report mm-hmm. and ask questions, which is fine. Yeah, that's all good. What do they get? They generally should get a report 
that addresses all the requirements from a bushfire aspect for their DA approval. So that covers uh, various things. Basically, the, the main thing is the bushfire attack level. They'll generally get building recommendations in that. In terms of material choices or...? Generally, just... it's a broader thing. Okay. I find if I specify materials, it might not be the material you want to use. Uh, so if the DA has been approved on my report, it's generally a condition of consent. So for argument's sake, I say you, you use a particular window and you want to change it to a different type of window, it's a Section 96 back to council, more Oh, expense. because council sort of looks at your report and then will put in their approval back to the homeowner for you to get your development approval and, and actually finalise this, you need to use this exact material that's been outlined Correct. in the bushfire report. So obviously you're giving people some... Do you describe it more from a performance point of view? It has to... I try and give it a more, like, more like a motherhood statement. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've got some flexibility in it, uh, but that's that's just me. Yeah. Um, but that's a good point, for, I think, for people to understand if they're wanting to have some flexibility that they brief their bushfire consultant that I don't want you to specify an exact material. I need you to tell me how does this material need to perform? What does it need to protect me against? What are the opportunities that I have to potentially change this to something else and it still satisfy the requirements? Exactly. So I'm not backed into a corner. Yeah, with the minimum of fuss. Yes. I mean, I've found um, stupid little things that have have stopped DAs that have then had to go back to council and in some cases back to the RFS who are the consenting authority. Which is the Rural Fire Service, isn't it? Uh, yeah. New South Wales Rural Fire Service. Yeah. They have a development control section and they're not actually a consenting authority. What do they call themselves? A determining authority. Yeah. So, so they... we had we had Nola on the podcast earlier this season and she was talking about these referral agencies that when you do lodge your DA, your development application into council, then it has to go out to all these different referral agencies. So if you've got bushfire, and this will happen in any state that you're doing a, a development application in, if you've got a bushfire overlay, it needs to go to the Rural Fire Service as part of their role, mm. isn't it, to make sure that you're doing what you need to do from that point of view? Yeah. Well, in New South Wales, and I'm led to believe Victoria and Western Australia now, well, not very up on their rules, but um, in New South Wales, there's an accreditation scheme for consultants. And theoretically, if a accredited consultant gives you a report that says it's BAL 29 or less, council don't need to refer it to the RFS. If it's Bell 40 or Flame Zone, the RFS consider it to be a high-risk proposal and they want to have a look, even though there's a report from a consultant that says what it is. They double-check it. They parallel assess it. Generally, they agree. Oh, they agree with mine anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What should you expect from your consultant? You should expect a report that outlines why your property is what it is, what all the variables are in there, like there's vegetation, there's slope, uh, access, water, landscaping, um, and the BAL. It should give you advice on how to comply with the various regulations of all those uh, particular aspects. And it should be enough to give to council. The council will then judge it either on the report or refer it, and um, it ticks the box on their DA form. And I think that it's worth understanding for people that, you know, the sooner you can have this information for your property, the better it places you to not waste time and money in that design process in resolving the material selection and and all of those, you know, components that you go through in resolving your design because the last thing you want to do is... uh, 
find out down the track and have to have, you know, change everything or, like you say, resubmit the DA or completely kill the project altogether. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that for everyone at home to understand that, you know, these early checks can then be the briefing package that you hand over to your designer to say, okay, well, this is what we have to design to. So let's make sure that all of these different constraints are helping us create a design that's on budget and knowing that we can actually get a simple approval. Yeah, look, the most sensible thing people can do is find out as soon as they can the constraints on your lot. Okay, so that's usually covered on your 149 certificate in New South Wales. I'm, I'm assuming other states have a similar certificate which lists whether you're prone to landslip, um, flood, bushfire. And as soon as you've got that, you go, okay, bushfire, I'll talk to someone. Now, I have people ring me all the time and say, look, I'm bushfire prone, um, I'm thinking of doing this, can you give me an idea? And I'll give them an idea and uh, then they go forward on based on that, um, get their design in order and when, once they've got the design sorted, then they'll contact me properly and say, you know, here we go, I've got my design, I spoke to you previously. Is that all right? And 99% of the time it's fine. And that saved them a whole heap of heartache later on. So, Yeah. And I think as a as a architect, I know that the conversations that you and I have had, you know, there was one specific property in Sydney where um, I was really surprised that it had a bushfire overlay on it because it did back onto a reserve, but it was a very small area of reserve. But you know, what you saw when you started to look at the aerial mapping was that then connected, you know, through a whole heap of interconnected areas back to National Park. Mm. And so that was triggering a significant kind of impact on that property. So for me to have understood that as the designer right up front to then be able to brief the homeowner and say, look, these are the hoops you're going to have to jump through. And perhaps strategically that means that we don't extend out the back of the property where we get closer to the fire source, but we actually look at extending to the front of the property where there was equally enough space um, but was going to remove a lot of the risk and uh, and I suppose extra conditioning that that bushfire overlay was having on their property. So I think, yeah, as a, as a point of view from the designer to understand that at a briefing stage mm. is really key in making sure that you just don't waste time for the client to um, design something that can't be approved. So Yeah, no, it's common sense. If you see, if you see a hazard, you don't want to go closer to it and you can go away from it. Yeah. And, yeah. So, Matt, I know that, you know, we were talking off air about this uh, this idea and something that I've seen in, you know, having a lot of experience uh, in the building and construction industry that, you know, building codes that used to be set in stone, you had to meet in a specific certain way that you are now able to meet through alternative or performance solutions where you can basically satisfy why that code exists and what it's seeking to achieve, but um, demonstrate that you're achieving it in a, in a different way. And I've seen, and you know, chatting to builders in the industry, a similar thing start to happen with the bushfire uh, requirements and how you satisfy the bushfire requirements and that it can have a, when you actually start to investigate this and ask questions around what is it you're really needing to protect your home from and how is it going to work, that you can um, you can find that you can lower your risk profile overall, which can then have an impact on your budget. And I know that when you and I first spoke about that property in Sydney, you know, there was an understanding, look, if we have this old house, which doesn't meet any of the bushfire requirements and could burn down very, very quickly, but we put an extension on the back of it that literally, you know, is fire. It was because it was a BALFZ flame zone. So, you know, it's going to survive 
attack by bushfire at the highest possible level, yet the house directly behind that it's attached to could just burn down like that, then... Um, and you said to me that, you know, there may be potential to investigate alternative solutions where if we actually improve the performance of the old house, we may be able to lower the risk profile overall and potentially achieve a lower rating. And it was something that we could look at having chats to authorities about. And you said to me, because they understand it's like putting a Band-Aid on gangrene. <laughs> and I remember thinking it was hilarious because it was exactly what it's like. Like if you're creating this incredibly fire retardant extension on a house that just isn't fireproof, at all, you know, where's the rationale and the logic in that? So, you know, can you just talk to some of the changes that have been you've been seeing in the industry and you've been seeing as we, I think, get a bit more sophisticated about, you know, making sure we're creating fire-protected properties but we're not um, working against logic in terms of how we achieve that? Well, the industry is quite young. It started in 1999 with the release of the first version of the standard and it's been evolving since then. The compliance document in New South Wales is a thing called Planning for Bushfire Protection, which was a rural fire service document. Its first version came out in 2001, and it was just a, you know, you shall comply with this sort of thing. In 2006, the second version of PVP came out, Planning for Bushfire Protection, and it was a performance-based one. So it gave particular aims you had to try and meet there was no real clear direction with them. So it really wasn't much of a performance document. But it's, and to be fair, there wasn't that many ways of quantifying information. Of late, common sense has started to come in. Uh, it's something I've argued you know, for a long time. I mean, that one you, uh, you cited earlier with the extension at the back, one of the most ridiculous ones I've commonly come across is a first floor extension where they have to build the first floor out of fire retardant everything on top of a 1960s house. <laughs> so you've got the, the base foundation will go up like a box of matches, but upstairs will be completely yeah, falling fire. down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and that when you look at that logically, it just it, it stands to reason that there should be an alternative way to solve that problem. So, but the the standard doesn't allow for it. So, you've got to have some sort of common sense approach. And given that the rural fire service is the um, determining authority, and uh, that's who council refer to, they've started to come around. And depending on the merits, they can judge everything on its merit. They are open to some some alternate ideas now, which is good. Uh, since the since the industry started, some very smart people have come up with a couple of ideas to um, to evaluate the the potential radiant heat on a building, um, where you do some specific mathematical modelling, and that's a way of uh, changing things around and potentially getting a lower lower um, result. There's a new methodology has emerged in the last uh, probably six months where they have recognised that little remnant pieces of vegetation, generally where you can't get a run of fire greater than 150 metres towards the building, they've recognised that that's not the same as a great chunk of World Heritage National Park in the Blue Mountains. 
and there's a, a method of modelling that, which is working quite nicely, which results in a lower, generally, results in a lower bushfire attack level. I did one not long ago based on this short fire run, and this fellow was flame zone, and I got him down to Val 29. Oh, wow. Saved him $150,000 in cost. He loves me. <laughs> I can understand why. Cause, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? This is such a site-specific solution. Yes. And, and it makes sense that it gets looked at at a site-by-site basis and it's not just this blanket rule that gets applied over an area or over a jurisdiction, you know, that we can actually come up with individual solutions unique to a property and protecting it from burning down and protecting it from spreading fire to other properties. So, Look, some of them certainly have extenuating circumstances. Uh, most, I would say, you can take a quick look at and you know what they are. Uh, but, yeah, there's a few that have extenuating circumstances. Another one, I, I got a, um, uh, a seniors living project approved where I wouldn't have otherwise got approved because I used an alternate solution for it. So that was that was a win. Yeah. That, that, that seniors living thing was just not going to happen. Yes. Yeah. No, and I can see that that's um, really powerful. And so I hope listening at home, you can understand how if you do have a very high bushfire, you know, you, you see initially that you've got this high bushfire risk, that you're not completely done and dusted from the get-go, but that having an expert professional come in team to work collaboratively with you to see if you can come up with a solution that satisfies the performance requirements but perhaps helps you still manage your budget, build the kind of outcome that you want to. And at the end of the day, you know, you don't want to go about building a house that can burn down in an area that is bushfire prone. So, mm. you know, it's, um, it's, it's quite different, I think, to other town planning rules where people might get quite frustrated. They don't understand why council gets to tell them why they're building, why they can't build what they want to build. But when this is about keeping you and your family safe and keeping the people around you safe as well, I think that it stands to reason that you doing that to the best of your ability, but also um, not being backed into a corner about having to go completely overboard if it's not really necessary for the specific requirements of your site. So, and, you know, we were talking about my property, which is over 80 acres and I sit on the top of the hill and, it, you know, I think we live in the only non-hatched area on our site and we have on our southern side a very steep hill of a lot of bushland but when you know we look to potentially do work on our project it it you know there's opportunity for us to clear that out and we make sure the tanks are always full and all of those types of things I think in terms of understanding how to manage the bushfire risk on your property overall. Yeah look my aim is always to try and get a realistic outcome based on the hazard and keep the cost as minimal as possible. Um, that's best you can ask for, I think. Yeah, that's a pretty good benchmark, everyone. <laughs> Just listen, that's your brief to your bushfire consultant. <laughs> yeah, didn't think of it that way. <laughs> so, Matt, you know, I suppose people are thinking, okay, all right, this this isn't sounding as scary as I thought it did. I can see that there's some avenues through this. So I think I'm going to need to get a bushfire consultant on board for my property sooner rather than later. How do you recommend they go about finding them? You know, what checks they should do, the kinds of things that they should look for, any accreditations, how they should really check it's going to be the right person for their project? Okay. Probably the first place you'd start is 
that given your house is in a bushfire-prone area, the chances are so are your neighbours. Have a look up and down your street and see whether you've found anybody who has had some building done recently. Go knock on the door, ask them who they use, were they any good? Um, if you can't do that, I would suggest that one of the main things you need is somebody with experience. Experience obviously comes with knowledge and the bushfire regulations have that many ins and outs that unless you know all of them, you won't, you probably won't come up with the, the best solution. The next best thing to look for would be accreditation. I mentioned, pre- mentioned previously the Fire Prevention Association of Australia have a, a scheme called BPAD, Bushfire Planning and Design. Okay, BPAD, yep. Um, on the FPAA website, you can do a search for their accredited consultants. Oh, fantastic. Okay, so I'll pop a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Yep. To be accredited, you have to have certain levels of education. There's three different levels of, of um, accreditation. Uh, there's uh, BPAD level three, which is the highest one, uh, where you can do deemed to satisfy and performance-based assessments. So you have to be accredited as a professional to be able to provide those to a client. Is that right? Am I understanding that correctly? Yes-ish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can go into there a bit later if you like. Yep. Uh, the next one down is um, BPAD level two, where they can do deemed to satisfy solutions only. If you pick an accredited consultant, you're getting somebody who has recognised learning. Uh, so the minimum is a for level three is a the postgraduate degree, which currently is the, the highest level of learning in New South Wales. So you're getting somebody who knows what they're doing theoretically, somebody who's insured and somebody who is kept up to date through um, CPD point requirements to keep your accreditation. Which is that continuing professional development, development isn't it, yeah. which you have to satisfy as part of keeping yep. keeping that. Yep. Yeah, so there are a few people out there who aren't accredited. Um, I'm finding more and more that their reports are being rejected by council. Wow. That's a good tip then. Yeah. So, well, I was having a chat with one of my colleagues the other week and he said that uh, that had happened to him. The lady had spent, I think, $1,500 on a, on a report and council had knocked it back. Okay. Uh, because it came from a non-accredited person. So so the scheme started oh, about 2006 and it took a long time to get legs, but now it's recognised in legislation uh, in the Exempted Compliant Development um, Code references uh, a person accredited by the New South Wales Rural Fire Service and the only people accredited by the New South Wales Rural Fire Service are people with BPAT accreditation. So just back to that point of those different, you know, levels of one, two and three and what that enables them to do, you know, should everybody just aim to get a number one that has can do deemed to satisfy and alternative or depending on the rating that you see on your property, I know I'm probably, this is a, a very complex question because I'm looking at your face going. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think for people if they, you know, maybe it's like, oh, okay, well, mine's not that hard so I can just get, you know, is there different prices but that you'll end up paying for different accreditation levels? Is there, if you are wanting to do something that's a, a particular solution outside of the box, should you just go for a, a level one? You know, what 
what really, or should you just get the best that you can afford? You know, what 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 would you tell people? Pricing, I, I can't really comment on because I don't know. Yeah. Uh, oh, and it's like every industry, people price things, the yeah. same things differently, yeah. Well, level three is the highest. Mm-hmm. Level two is the next one. Level one we don't have in New South Wales. Level three, to get to level three, you've got to have experience. Level two is a sort of starting point. So level three are the ones with experience. And as I said, go for someone with experience would be my humble opinion. Yeah. Okay. Given, well, I think given that's... Given I'm a level three. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, you can see from our conversation that this isn't just a cut and dry, you know, tick a bunch of boxes on a form, pick a certain type of, you know, design solution. Like there is room for movement and there is skill and expertise required to help navigate you through that and guide you to the outcome that delivers the house design you want on the budget you want to satisfy the council requirements as well. So I think that that having that, you know, the right team member assisting with that, like you say, we're talking, you know, six figures in terms of saving potential as a difference of from one rating, you know, to step it down a couple of layers. I think that um, you'll always... You know, you can see when you compare, you know, a few thousand dollars to get a bushfire consultant on board versus $150,000 in extra construction costs or potentially killing the project, the value assessment there is quite straightforward. So, no, for sure. Another thing I should have mentioned too is a good re- your consultant needs to have a good relationship with the regulatory authorities. And I get on quite well with all the RFS and most councils. Um, if you find that your consultant doesn't have a good reputation with the councils or the RFS, yeah, obviously you give them, give them a wide berth. Yeah, because so much of this is about the access to having the conversations, to testing things out, asking questions before you've finalised mm. reports and designs and things like that. So if you've got somebody who's got a line into council and will have their, you know, has an established relationship, I think that's, you know, a great tip. So Oh, for sure. I find it very handy. I mean, I find that I don't get terribly many questions asked of mine because I've sorted all the problems out before I send them in. Day before yesterday, I rang somebody I know at the RFS and said, I'm proposing this. What do you reckon? I oh, know, well, we can do this and this to get around that. Yeah, sure. Now, that's all unofficial stuff, but... Um, but it's incredibly powerful intel to have, isn't it? And mm-hmm. and that only comes because you've got that established relationship and respect in terms of uh, being able to have that conversation. Yeah, well, I know there's a few consultants they won't talk to. Mm. Well they try to avoid talking to. Yes. So. Yeah, and I think that's great advice uh, generally for anyone that you're working with is that, you know, look to has look to who has great connections and relationships with, uh, with, with councils and the authorities. I was previously when I was chatting with Nola, the town planner, and we were talking about a situation where somebody had said to me, you know, they were trying to do a renovation or a new build on a property and it was sitting in council forever, yet the architect down the road managed to lodge it, get it approved, and it was because of, you know, they knew ways around and they it was not what you know, it's who you know. And mm-hmm. it was like, well, no, the professional in that situation knew how to help the person that needed to provide the approval do their job really well and provided them with all the information that they needed and had been able to have conversations to anticipate all of that before they'd gone and lodged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the same goes, I think, for when you bushfire consultants on board, that just to be able to anticipate all of the the rigmarole that the approving authority has to go through 
to protect their own risk, to protect the risk of your area, to protect you as the owner of your home, to be able to make their job easier with the consultant knowing how to have a conversation with them, how to test all of that out, I think just saves a lot of time and drama in the long run. Anticipate the problem and give them the answer before. Yeah, yeah, that, and that's probably the mantra we should just have for everything, isn't it? Yeah, it's that come to me with solutions, not problems thing, exactly. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. All right, Matt, this has just been brilliant and I, I can just I know that for the listener at home this has just demystified and simplified so much of what can actually be a an incredibly, um, I think scary is probably the word. I, I know the very first time that I saw a, a bushfire overlay and the BAL kind of terminology, it was like, holy cow, what's this going to mean? Um, and I think, you know, hopefully people are seeing that there's ways to navigate through it simply. You just got to get the right people and the right information and process in, in place so that you can do that. Uh, so in terms of somebody picking up the phone to you or getting you over to their property, you know, what? how should they get ready for that meeting? What should they do to prepare for it? What kinds of questions should they be asking? You know, how how do you recommend somebody goes about that process? Okay, I often get people calling me in that situation. They, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to start. But they'll call me with the only thing they have is their address. They have no idea of what they want to do, how they want to do it, what they want to build it out of, etc. At the very least, you need an idea of what you want to do maybe a bit of a mud map. The most crucial information I need is where is the building footprint? Where do you want to build? Then dictates the setback from the bush, which in combination with a few other things, uh, dictates the bell level. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you at least need a mud map of the site. Okay. And for somebody who, like I've got, um, one of the members of one of my online programs at the moment, she's got a, a very treed block up in the Sunshine Coast area. And I've said to her, they're, they're actually quite flexible where they might put their house. Um, she knows roughly what she wants to do. Uh, and I've said to her, I think that chatting to a bushfire consultant to get information about where might be best to situate the house to lower the risk or potentially change the outcome that she might have to create. Is that also, you know, an yeah. opportunity in terms of a conversation with a bushfire consultant if you do have some flexibility about that? Oh, for sure. As long as your block's big enough, um, like for argument's sake, you're doing a new build on a decent-sized block, um, yeah, I'll often tell people, oh, well, you know, where you want to put it is going to be X level, but if you move it yay far away, it'll be this level. And you know, the difference between bell 40 and bell 29 is about $30,000, roughly. Um, so, yeah, I certainly offer them that advice. And if they can't move the house, I suggest vegetation management. So it's either move the house or remove the vegetation. Yeah. Basically, okay. you've got to get as far away from it as you can to get the lowest level. So if you can clear, if you can clear it and you're allowed to clear it yes. with council because um, not everybody can clear the vegetation on their property, can they? So, uh, but yeah, if you can, then that uh, that understanding of budgeting in that that you push the fire source feature back away from where you're building envelopes so that you can lower the risk. Another little interesting one is often it's not your property that's a problem, it's your neighbours. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always worthwhile talking to the neighbours and seeing whether or not they'll let you modify their vegetation. Uh, obviously you've got to get the appropriate council approvals. In New South Wales there's a 1050 rule which lets you chop down 
if you're in a bushfire prone area, which you wouldn't be talking to me otherwise, generally speaking, the 1050 rule applies to you. What that is, it's a it's a rule where you can chop down any tree within 10 metres of the house and, okay. remo- and remove any scrub within 50 metres. <laughs> 1050, yeah. that makes sense. Another yeah. one that they worked a long time to come up with the name <laughs> of. <laughs> there are some reasonably strict requirements for it. You need to check and make sure you are in that area, even though your bushfire prone doesn't necessarily mean you are. If you've got endangered ecological communities on your, your block, you're in problems. But... Um, Going back to the, the neighbours' places, a lot of people are happy to have you come in and remove their vegetation. They just never got around to it, providing you pay for it. Yes, yeah. And yeah. I think that's actually great advice because you, you, you've got to, I, take, I think, take that helicopter view, don't you, mm. of, all right, well, this is where I am and this is what's going on around me. And let's not just silo ourselves in terms of reviewing what we're doing on our own property. Because at the end of the day, this is about stopping bushfire from reaching all of us. So, you know, what can we do as as a community to make sure that we're getting better outcomes for everybody? So, yeah. and I have seen people, yeah, rally together with their neighbours and say, okay, well, annually we're going to get somebody to come in and clear all of this and then we'll split our costs and and that's part of that bushfire management process as well. For sure, yeah, I've seen that a couple of times now. The RFS used to call it building community resilience because if you put your DA in for your house on your normal suburban block, one of the conditions that they used to put on you was that you have to manage your block as an asset protection zone. So basically you, it's managed as a non-hazard. And that way when the neighbour goes to do it, he doesn't have a hazard next door. So he's benefited from your previous DA and so on up and down the street. You can actually see it in some of the streets in the more leafy areas where it's, uh, you know, that one's been done, oh, nice clear block. So it works, but it's a long-term process. It's a lot easier to go and talk to your neighbours and spend a couple of thousand dollars. and Yeah, and then lower the construction cost overall. Yeah. Yeah. I did one um, not long ago in Lane Cove where I suggested to him that he went and spoke to his neighbour and he said, no, no, we, we don't get on. <laughs> if he had have, if he had have got on with his, yeah, it was, it was a bit sad. If he had have got on with his neighbour and cleared his block, it would have saved him three hundred thousand dollars. Oh well, there's a tip for you: mm. take over some banana cake and mm. make bottle, friends. Bottle of something, yeah, bottle of something, and yeah, yeah, mm. hundred dollar bottle of champers would yeah, <laughs> two if you smoothed, need to. <laughs> Smooth things over and save three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah, it was no, one of those stupid neighbourhood war things. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? Mm. And I think you know, uh, when I really love this idea that we think about how we do anything as not only just our own block, our own home, our own family, our own experience, but how it contributes to the built environment that we all have to live in because the choices your neighbour makes impact you and your experience of your home. Mm. So yeah, I think bridging the gap and finding ways that as a community you can build that bushfire resilience is um, is a great piece of advice for people to think more um, openly and holistically about how they deal with bushfire risk in their in their area. Yep, yep. you've got to take a holistic approach. Yep. Measures in combination, it's called. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of actually working well with your bushfire consultant, um, you know, you're obviously you know, a bushfire consultant is jumping in and out of the project. They're with you for a a short time to really make a dramatic impact on your ability to get approvals and what you might be constructing at all. How do you recommend people work well with them to get the best out of that situation? 
asking, okay, well, communication mm-hmm. obviously is the main thing. Listen. Yeah. If, you, if you hear something you don't want to hear, ask why. And they should explain it to you and by the time you've finished explaining, they, it should make sense to you. If it doesn't, go find another consultant. That would be the, um, the easiest way. The other thing too is you need to check how often you're going to need your consultant. Majority of the time in the past, the consultant's done his job at DA stage and that's it. You know, it's, Once it's got passed through council, he's done his job, it's all over Red Rover. What I've been finding of late is that at the end of the job, the certifiers or council want the consultant to come back and check on the builder. Now, that's very hard to do because you don't know what they've done inside the walls and how they've built it, etc. So check your conditions of consent. If the consultant needs to look at it at the end of it, you need to get them involved during the process of it. Yeah, that's great advice. So when you get your DA approval back, those conditions will be laid out by the council and it's really important that you don't just glaze over and go, that's a bunch of standard terminology I can't understand, that you actually read it very carefully or you get professional help to read it and understand then what your obligations are going to be because your DA approval isn't just a one-stop shop, is it? You actually then need to make sure you deliver on everything that's in it in order to finalise your approval with council. Yep. Ultimately, it's this, whoever the principal certifying body is that's responsible for the sign-off needs all the information you can get. So I would suggest at the very beginning of the build, you ask, what consultants do I need involved during the build? Um, so hopefully he would then go, oh, well, no, it's BAL 12.5, I'm comfortable doing that myself. Or, or no, it's flame zone. You need to get your consultant in at the the wall stage, the roof stage, the window stage and the cladding stage or whatever he wants. And that's critical because then, of course, those those things are going to cost money to have a a different consultant come out to site and inspect your property. Mm. So then it's not a nasty surprise in inspection fees whilst you're managing your construction budget and that process overall and also feeding that into your construction program so you don't have delays whilst you're madly scrambling to get somebody to agree to come and inspect your property yeah. is, is key too. And look, it, it's, a, it's a good idea to get them involved during the build. I have had the situation several times, I'm doing one at the moment, where the builder didn't know what he was doing. Um, I'm now telling them to take their roof off mm. and put it on properly. And I find that a lot of builders don't really know. They'll take on a, a flame zone job and muddle their way through it. Uh, and I had another one the other day. We had, went to the NCAT, the tri- tribunal for building problems. Right. Where it had just been done so badly, I had to give expert advice and, and again, the roof had to come off. Because the builder hadn't understood what the implications yep. on his construction methodology were for how he had to build a roof in a flame zone area. We've always done it that way is what I've been told. Oh, gosh, or, that's hard, isn't it? Or, or we used fireproof sarking, which isn't enough. Yeah. I've had that well, numerous times. I know other consultants have had it numerous times as well. So, so that's really important that a bushfire consultant can actually guide the other people in your team as to how they need to do their job to get the result that you need to satisfy your approvals. Sure. I had to come into um, into town last week. I didn't have to. I was asked to by an architectural firm to sit down and guide them through what they needed to do on this 
house and I just sat with them for about an hour and said, yeah, you do this, 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 this. What can we use? Oh, well, you can use this or this or this or this or this or this or this. And we worked our way through the plans. By the time we finished, they had a whole heap of notes. They probably won't have to get me back in if they build it how I've told them to. And the certifier should be happy because I've put I've had input into it. When it's finished, he should be able to sign it off. That'll save me having to go back out and the cost of having me go back out because I don't do it for nothing. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it, you know, it should end up in a good result. Oh, that's fantastic advice. And I think that um, for people listening, you can see if this is something for your property, what an asset a bushfire consultant will be as a key member of your team just to remove a lot of headaches in the long run. So, um Yeah, I think that's amazing. So thank you, Matt. It's been such a joy having you here and you've just shared so much wisdom and experience uh, with everyone in the UA community. So I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me and I hope I made some sense. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers, Matt. (laughs) Now, if managing bushfire risk is something relevant for your property, I hope you found this episode really useful. One of the challenges that I see many homeowners face is they actually don't uncover their bushfire requirements until well into their design process and they end up really pushing their budget with necessary measures to make their home bushfire resistant. As you can see, it's much more effective to understand upfront what's required so that you can be strategic about your project overall, you can manage your budget and you can make sure that you can achieve the approvals that you need as well as create a safe and durable home. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Matt and Bushfire Planning Consultants, make sure that you head to the show notes and I'll have links to the website and their social pages there so that you can get in touch. And Matt shares lots of tips on their Facebook page that are really handy if this is something that you need to consider for your property. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Mick Tyrrell from Building Approvals and Advice. Mick is a building certifier and he'll be helping you understand why you need one and what role they perform. So join me then. Now, before I go, remember that our Season 4 podcast partner is Colourbond Steel and their Matt Range. So whether you're planning to build or renovate in a bushfire-prone area or you're simply wanting to increase the bushfire protection that's afforded to your home, Colourbond Steel may help you protect your property. So Colourbond Steel roofing and walling and other products are compliant for use in bushfire zones, including the most extreme BALFZ, which is the bushfire attack level flame zone, which you heard Matt talk about in our interview. So, And this is specified in Australian Standards 3959-2009. So just remember that they're compliant for use in those bushfire zones. So what I love about this is that, you know, often when you're understanding that you have to design for a bushfire zone you feel like you're backed into this corner to have a home that will look a certain way when it comes to building or renovating it uh, so that it, it satisfies the requirements of being in a bushfire prone area yet colorbond steel can actually create great looking homes that are elegant or industrial or contemporary or more traditional so whatever your preferred design style colorbond steel can actually help you create a home that meets the requirements of the bushfire zone looks great and is super durable as well. So make sure that you head to www.colorbond.com forward slash undercover architect and remember color is spelled C-O-L-O-R bond.com forward slash undercover architect where you can find out loads more information about how Colorbond Steel could help you in your project. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Get It Right podcast with Undercover Architect. Now, if you head to the Undercover Architect website, you'll see loads more helpful information on how to get it right when designing, building or renovating your home simply and with confidence. Not only can you see all the podcast episodes there, there's also a wealth of written blogs and of videos too covering all sorts of topics. And there's other ways as well that Undercover Architect can give you more support and guidance for your project. Now, if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please subscribe so that you always get notified of new episodes as soon as they go live. And I'd love it too if you could please leave a review. (laughs) I know that iTunes doesn't make it easy to leave a review, but when you do, this is super helpful in spreading the word that this podcast exists to others who really need to hear it to get help with planning their future homes. This has been Amelia Lee from Undercover Architect. Thank you for listening and for letting me be your secret ally. Looking forward to next time. Bye.